I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And we're taping this episode on the weekend after Trump supporters attempted a coup. The prior Sunday, Wit said we should do this episode on conspiracy theorists and QAnon and... And then on Wednesday, conspiracy theorists or conspiracy terrorists attacked the Capitol. Yeah. So, I mean, Whitney, do you have a really good magic eight ball or... I don't know. Common sense, I think, would tell that, you know, if you're paying attention, I don't think this should have been really super surprising. Yeah, let's go with common sense. I mean, to be fair, you predicted this. I predicted this. A lot of people predicted this. A number of federal agencies tasked with the security of elected officials and government buildings apparently did not predict this. And in the coming weeks, I hope we hear about the mostly white naivete that made that possible. But just to start off this episode, to set the stage for our listeners, uh, we're going to talk about what we mean when we talk about conspiracy theories that played a role in the storming of the Capitol last week. First, there's the whole QAnon conspiracy theory, which is sort of like the Dungeons and Dragons of right-wing conspiracies in the sense that it has these endless sidetracks and permutations. But the definition of QAnon, according to The Guardian, sounds like this, and I'm quoting here, QAnon is a baseless internet conspiracy theory whose followers believe that a cabal of Satan-worshipping Democrats, Hollywood celebrities, and billionaires runs the world while engaging in pedophilia, human trafficking, and the harvesting of a supposedly life-extending chemical from the blood of abused children. Doesn't sound so good when you Oh when no, you read I'm not even done. I'm not okay. even done. QAnon followers believe that Donald Trump is waging a secret battle against the cabal and its deep state collaborators to expose the malefactors and send them all to Guantanamo Bay. Yeah. And as the Guardian points out, there are also subplots quote about John F Kennedy Jr being alive, which he's not. 
the Rothschild family controlling all the banks, which they don't, and children being sold through the website of the furniture retailer Wayfair, which they are not. So there's that. Oh my God, lizard people, everyone. Or rather, lizard people. No, no, there's a lizard part of this too. We have lizard person conspiracy, which says that intelligent reptile humanoids sent here by aliens live among us and are secretly controlling America. Queen Elizabeth, George W. Bush, the Clintons, Bob Hope, all lizard people. And this matters because there is evidence that Anthony Quinn Warner, who blew up his RV in downtown Nashville a little while back, believed in lizard people. And more comically, Lynn Wood, the attorney who has filed many lawsuits disputing Trump's election, recently tweeted about having evidence that John Roberts, among others, has been caught on videotape raping children and that, stay with me now, they are being blackmailed and their blackmailers were hacked by an online group called the Lizard Squad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay, just to be clear, the Lizard Squad is a real thing. It's a black hat hacking group that does not claim to be lizard people, but Linwood is also involved in the most recently created conspiracy theory in American life, one that we've been able to watch grow in real time, replicating in the Petri dish of social media and right-wing media. And that is the one that President Trump keeps lying about. That's the one that says he won the election when he didn't, that votes were stolen from him when they weren't. And it has its own Baroque forms of conspiracy promulgated by lackeys like Rudy Giuliani, Lynn Wood, and Sidney Powell, all whom claim, for instance, that Dominion voting machines were somehow corrupted by the dead corpse of Hugo Chavez. And I think Dominion voting is suing now, um, et cetera. And to be clear, we are not saying that, Dominion voting. We, we are, are not we saying this. I think you did a good job. Fine. <laughs> and this is why some of our country people decided to storm and desecrate the Capitol building, the People's House, and smear shit in it, which is not what one does when it's the People's House. All of which is to say that this is a golden or golden shower age of conspiracy theories that a good chunk of our population think are credible and are willing to commit violent terrorist acts on our center of government as a result. But for a long time, conspiracy theories have been the stuff of literary and commercial fiction and movies. And today we have two wonderful guests here to talk about this. Later on the show, we'll talk to Professor James Plath, editor of the volume of volume of critical essays on conspiracy theories in literature. But first, we're thrilled to talk to Jenny Offill. Jenny is the author of the novels Last Things, a New York Times notable book of the year, and a finalist for the LA Times First Book Award, and Department of Speculation, which was shortlisted for the Folio Prize, the Penn Faulkner Award, and the International Dublin Award. She lives in upstate New York and teaches at Bard College and in the low residency program at Queen's University. Jenny, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I think just to start off, um, I'd like to ask you how you felt, not as a novelist, but just as a person watching the assault on the Capitol last week. I had been very worried about it. Um, I remember saying to a friend of mine the day before, I just hope we don't have an armed assault on the Capitol tomorrow, because I some of the people that I read um, on Twitter are authoritarian ism scholars, and they were concerned about it, as were people who study um, extremist websites. But I thought that that was just kind of my doomy mindset running away with me. But when it actually happened, um, I was with my daughter. And so I wasn't sure I was, I wasn't sure what was going to be seen on the screen. So I actually went and played a game with her instead of watching it and pieced it together afterwards. But I have, you know, I was in New York, for 9-11 and I kind of have that uh, feeling like I did in the days afterwards where you've just seen something um, unfold. It's so frightening. Um, This felt like a very near miss um, for a lot of people. Uh, In the middle of your novel, Weather, you have a list of questions that your main character, Lizzie, is asked in her role as a librarian. And while I was reading the novel, I came to think of them as conspiracy questions. Um, 
I wondered if you could read that list and then maybe we could talk about how you put it together. Sure. People also ask, what will disappear from stores first? Why do humans need myths? Do we live in the Anthropocene? What is the cultural trance? Is it wrong to eat meat? What is surveillance capitalism? How can we save the bees? What is the internet of things? When will humans go extinct? So what was your <laughs> what was your mind frame when you put together these questions that the librarian's getting? I mean, I'm going somewhere with this, but I was just kind of want to know what you were thinking when you were writing it. Well, I was feeling a sense of um, that there were almost these currents of conspiracy um, floating around in the air, floating around in the ether. And um, some of them were questions that, in fact, scholars are addressing like about surveillance capitalism, how much of our data is being um, captured and monitored. And others were, um, were about the natural world falling apart, um, but not with a sense uh, that we have any agency in that. <laughs> sort of like what's happened to the bees um, as if there were uh, a more complicated explanation than the, the human impact on um, all sorts of animals and plants. So I think I wanted to kind of have a list of those where the register changed, but the kind of um, sense of something falling apart was was the same, something larger than we could comprehend at the time. It's like poetry, right? There's the last line is the one about extinction, right? But there, there are all those other prior thoughts are related to that in some way. Um, I especially focused on the line, why do humans need myths? You know, because I don't want to in any way downplay the dangerous, villainous, bad faith of the conspiracy theories that we talked about at the top of the show and that we're going to be talking about later with James Plath. But um, in the end, myths are like an overarching imaginary explanation for why things are the way they are, and which is often not the way we want them to be. And that's sort of the same thing as a conspiracy theory, isn't it? Well, I mean, conspiracy theories feel like they have harnessed a very basic um, human desire, which is the part of our brain that it's important to recognize patterns so that we can assess danger. Um, and also the part of our brain that makes meaning out of the patterns we see. Um, but one of the things I think that takes, takes the conspiracy theories in a different direction is that almost always there's a scapegoat um, that is that is behind it. Um, but on top of that, too, there's a sense that um, that you are looking at a series of events, whether it's the pandemic or an election result you don't think is the one you should have seen. And instead of feeling I don't have control over this, if you amass all this information together, um, you feel like, oh, actually, I understand it and very few other people do. So you go from having no sense of agency to a lot of sense of agency. Um, and I think in some ways it's really similar to this idea that sociologists talk about the just world hypotheses, um, which is basically you get what you deserve and you deserve what you get, um, which often underlies people who believe in these right-wing um, ideologies. Well, maybe that's one of the myths that we live with, the myth of meritocracy. <laughs> I think very much so. You know, we all we all hear all the time about the American dream, but um, I feel like increasingly that idea has been shown as something that only was uh, 
achievable dream for a very small segment of Americans um, from the beginning. I also wonder if, is it possible that the way conspiracy theories are constructed now has to do also, they're changing because of technology, like some kinds of conspiracy theories work really good on Twitter because you can investigate them through pictures, like the way that the electioneering stuff went, like people would get film of the people counting votes and they'd say, this chest is being moved, something was bad happening there. And so people are able to be involved in it and feel like they're doing sort of play pretend detective work. Yes. I mean, I think the Twitter detective is um, is a real thing for, for good and for ill. I mean, right now we have a lot of people who are trying to identify the people that um, uh, rushed into the Capitol. And you, so you have that whole world of people doing that. But I think that one of the things that we maybe know on some level, but can sort of be easy to forget is that when leaders lied repeatedly in the past, they really weren't able to... Uh, pass along those falsehoods as quickly. And our brains are not really able. Um, you know, there's an interesting stuff that they've done some studies where most people repetition starts to feel like truth. So the incredible onslaught of social media, the amount of information we have to take in, if that is being manipulated by a bad actor, then we almost have no easy defense against it because it's just coming too fast for um, anything but our most emotional brain to react to. It's interesting to me the way that, um, and I so appreciated the depiction of that feeling of overwhelm in weather. Um, Whitney, what you're saying seems like there's this sort of interesting gray area between like the personal and the public. I was reading yesterday this story about an 18-year-old who identified her mother and her aunt and her uncle. I saw that. <laughs> And immediately reported it and sort of like the way that and that that sort of intensely personal confirmation was actually so much more reliable than, um, you know, I also this morning watched um, a video of a man being arrested who yelled, you know, you're treating me like a fucking black person. And it was sort of offered as proof on Twitter of, of you know, the kind of racism of this group of people, which, of course, is true. Um, and then someone else said that that video was from 2017. And so and even I, you know, I worked as a journalist. I should have a, spe a skeptical mind. I should avoid my own confirmation bias. And I totally 100% thought that video was from now. I just saw it this morning. Yeah. I right. just... Or the video of the Trump family um, cheering on. Yeah, looking at the screen originally, it looked like it was happening while they were rushing the Capitol. It turned out to be the rally beforehand. Um, still quite disturbing, frankly, but but that you're right about confirmation bias. I mean, I think all of us have it. And especially in moments where we're, um, I mean, it's not, it's a normal reaction right now to be terrified and enraged and worried and not have enough information. So um, normally, like I, I feel like I want to like seek information all the time. And when we get anything that feels true, um, that is the part that gets in. I mean, Timothy Snyder, who I, I've really been following for years. In fact, one of my friends wrote to me today saying your, your boyfriend, uh, Timothy Snyder has a great op-ed <laughs> because I used to hand out that book on tyranny to people, you know, like candy. And he talks about how um, when information moves that fast, what we end up doing is just fixating on what feels true and not um, having as many um, of the layers of like fact checking and understanding and that you might, you know, when you're talking about as a journalist looking at something. 
That's fascinating. I think that um, maybe the piece that your friend was referring to is the essay. He wrote a long essay that I think is going to be in the New York Times Magazine on Sunday called The American Abyss. Oh, right. I think you're right. It might not be out yet. I read it online. Yeah, it's online. And it's, I mean, it's so every paragraph. Um, He talks about Hannah Arendt, too, who I think um, is is so such an interesting person to read right now because, you know, she talked about the great lie um, and that, that certain things like the um, virulent anti-Semitism that's for the Holocaust has to be a big lie. It has to be like Jews run the world or da 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 da. And that right now we have this lie that the election was stolen. Um, and one of the points he makes is that interestingly, she said that these can only take root um, in people when there's already a level of loneliness. And so the fact that these conspiracy theories have gotten so much worse during the pandemic, I think is something that's gonna be really interesting to try to untangle later. You know, so many people alone at home looking for answers about an event that they don't understand, that no one understands. And maybe also looking for community and disrupting and reforming different communities. And one of the things that I, I mean, one of the reasons that story about the 18 year old is so fascinating is because, um, you know, um, thinking about how close that is to her and her, or even, you know, George, uh, George and Kellyanne Conway's daughter, people were also fascinated with her kind of online presence and resistance to. My son is a huge fan of hers. I mean, <laughs> yeah, she's, she's a, I think, I think a lot of teenagers like love, it's like, she's, she's subverting them from within the house is the, is the theory. I mean, it's just, it's, um, but then there's also like this fear, right? That within your own community, we've all heard, you know, you should talk to your racist uncle at Thanksgiving. Um, you know, I, I looked online recently and saw that someone I knew from high school had posted something that I, I found, um, really appalling. And so how do we address those things or find those things or root those things out? And this made me think of the X-Files, um, which was the show where, you know, of course I was a fan of it. And one of the ongoing mythologies was about sort of like the incursion into these private spaces of a kind of thought that's so scary. And I'm a fan of, you know, Don DeLillo, Ray Bradbury, Margaret Atwood, Ralph Ellison, all of whom wrote about these things in different ways. And I like it when writers use conspiracy narratives to get at some larger underlying truth or question. But the current sort of toxic right-wing conspiracies like QAnon and the stolen, quote-unquote, stolen election made me think about the damage that I see them doing on the right. So I'm curious what you think about any intersection between left and right-wing conspiracy narratives. Is it possible that progressive conspiracy narratives telling people to distrust the government are being replicated in right-wing conspiracy narratives that also tell people to distrust the government? I, I mean, I think there's some truth to that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think when the um, uh, when the fiction and, and if think of things like Three Days of the Condor, there were movies, there were various things, um, in the 70s, it was also one of the moments with the Vietnam War and the counterculture um, springing up that there was this real sense of um, don't believe what you're told. Of course, the famous don't, be- don't trust anyone over 30 thing. Um, but that distrust of institutions, which can be very healthy, um, can also sort of be weaponized um, because we do as a society have to have some shared realities. We have to have some um, ideas of things we trust. I mean, it turns out, I think that the the U.S. Postal Office is one of the few government agencies that people trusted. And, and that was a really interesting thing when um, 
that was be, you know, there was an attempt to subvert that. I was read some interesting articles about it. But I think that there's left-wing conspiracy theories going on right now. You mentioned Kelly, um, Kellyanne Conway's daughter. You know, there's people on the left who think that um, that's all a very complicated um, psych op to make <laughs> us think that there's resistance. I mean, some theories feel like they are calling people, inciting people to action and even to violent action. And QAnon, they're saying there's this cobble of uh, uh, people in the government who are doing the most horrible things you can imagine and they're Satanists, you know, root them out. So that harnesses people's who really believe in it, this sense that they are doing the right thing. Um, and so I think there's definitely a sense of like some of them have more actionable um, danger than others. And, and uh, the right wings ones, I think are also have a whole a bigger ecosystem um, on the media that promotes them. Apparently the left wing ones don't get as much traction. Well, I mean, listen, Three Days of the Condor, is that a Redford movie? I think I've seen that. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, Robert Redford is like the most popular man in America when he's making this movie and nobody's like, you're a terrible conspiracy theorist. Everyone's like, you're a wonderful truth-telling, great guy, super movie star, you know? So I feel like there is some of that DNA, like the the people on the right, I'm not, and again, not excusing any of this stuff, but I'm just wanting to explore that, that, that it's complicated the way conspiracy theories have worked in our culture and that, you know, like I can understand there's a there's a part of it is is you're always the good guy if you have the conspiracy theory or have been in the past. Now, I wonder also if this, the way that conspiracy narratives have been weaponized in the in these last four years is going to change the way conspiracy movies go and, and books work in the future. I mean, um, Gillian Flynn had a, a, a series that was out, uh, Gillian's a friend of mine, that got criticized for being about conspiracy theories at a time when nobody wanted to hear about or think they were funny. Right, because it used to be that you would hear a conspiracy theory um, when you sat next to someone on the bus and chatted about the weather for a few minutes, <laughs> right. and then it might turn out that you were going to hearing about the new order um, or uh, something something you weren't expected, an unexpected turn. Um, and now I think um, partly because of the, you know, what is surveillance capitalism? Um, it's like the algorithms, of course, if you put in a particular conspiracy theory and put in proof, <laughs> you are actually going to come up with the um, almost always like one of the people that is promoting the conspiracy theory. So, I mean, one of the things I wonder about is just how is it going to change in terms of education? Like, is there going to be some sort of education that starts happening at an earlier age about um, figuring out what disinformation is. There's all these really good reporters now on the disinformation beat that I feel like are trying to explain how to best understand things you find online. But um, yeah, I think that the, the core thing behind it though is that desire to make meaning and desire to be in the right and have your worldview justified. And that's never gonna go away. That's, you know, that's human nature. So about halfway through Weather, the main character, Lizzie, asks a war veteran friend of hers, does this feel like a country at peace or at war? And that line just seemed this week exceptionally resonant. I was wondering if you could read that passage and then talk to us about what made it happen. My question for him is, does this feel like a country at peace or at war? I'm joking, sort of, but he answers seriously. He says it feels the way it does just before it starts. It's a weird thing, 
but you learn to pick up on it. Even while everybody's convincing themselves it's going to be okay, it's there in the air somehow. The whole thing is more physical than mental, he tells me. Like hackles? The way a dog's hackles go up? Yes, he says. He tells me that at the wilderness camp where he works, they teach the kids something called loss proofing. In order to survive, you have to think first of the group. If you look after the needs of others, it will give you purpose and purpose gives you the burst of strength you need in an emergency. He says, you never know which kids will do well, but in general, the suburban kids do the worst. They have no predators, he says. Thank you very much. Uh, I don't. I checked your bio. I don't think that you were in Iraq or Afghanistan during the war. No, I'm not a war reporter. Um, but I I did read a lot. I I did read a lot about war reporting for this book, even though it ended up being kind of a small part of it. And that particular section is informed by an article that um, uh, Sasha Heman, Alexander Heman, wrote. Um, right after the election, it was called Stop Making Sense, How to Write in the Age of Trump. And I really, I thought it was a really amazing article. Um, I don't know if it's possible to link to it, but it was one of the things he said, he's um, Bosnian, was that when he was talking to his mother right before the siege of Sarajevo, that there was this general sense where people would say, oh, the bombs are getting more distant. You know, it, 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 there was this sense that it was... But he said that right before he left, some part of him, which he described as like the animal part of him, started looking up at high places and thinking a sniper could shoot from there. Now this is the streets he's walked down, you know, many, many times. And it felt like it was some kind of, um, yeah, some knowledge that was more about intuition than about fact, because at the time people still were thinking, oh, maybe it won't happen. So that's what, um, so I'm, I guess I'm a little of a hackles up kind of person, um, <laughs> especially since uh, Trump was elected. So I spent a lot of time, you know, talking to people about that article. And, um, and what I realized was like, some people just don't feel that it has to be absolutely at their door before they feel um, afraid. And that's one of the, the, um, the biggest things helpers that any kind of movement um, that wants to uh, do violent overthrow has, that people are like, it won't happen here, or we just look at what we already have seen and say, no, I don't have a template for it. That's not what it is. So he was saying in that you might feel it and yet your rational brain might say no. I, yeah, I mean, well, you know, intuition is, is of course, the fact that we're always bringing in, we're always getting so much more data than we can consciously process. And so it registers in a different way. That's what I think intuition is. And I, just to say as, to show how good I thought that passage was, you know, I have been in a, in a Humvee in a village in Iraq where the people that I'm looking at know that they've got a bomb up road from you and that's going to go off and you can feel it. At least the soldiers that I was with could feel it, right? I wasn't good enough to recognize that stuff, right? But they would start to feel it. And that, the way you describe it is exactly correct. The novel begins before the Trump election and then moves through it. And here are some of the lines that I wrote down, you know, um, they're just sort of ambient in the book. You know, what are the best ways to prepare children for the coming chaos? Hasn't the world always been going to hell in a handbasket? In chaotic times, people long for a strong man. I wonder how much this general sense of, ambient malaise, right, contributes to 
conspiracy theories. And I also just want to add in also, you know, like speaking of while we're talking about the war, I have always felt that the 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 tragedies of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan was that we lost, that no one could say that we lost for a long time, that it was incredibly damaging and all kinds of people who were very of good ill gave like tremendous years of their lives to this thing and got nothing, no parade, no real thanks, nothing. And I, it's hard for me not to think that somehow when you've given like that and then you get nothing that you're that's a that's that it harms people deeply. I mean, I, I think that th there was some talk about that also with the Vietnam War that, that you know, it was the first time veterans came home and people were um, booing them, you know, and that there's I, I think they came up with this term like moral injury, you know, like the idea that you've gone and done something that you thought was right. Um, but it's also required you to do things that maybe, you know, are against your moral code. Um, and, and then what do you do when you try to come back from that? Um, I know most, many people I've known, I've had a lot of students actually that have been in the military. And, um, and one, of the time, one of the things I notice is that it's very hard to be out of it. They often keep trying to find a way back there, even if it was terrible. And it's partly because the world made sense in that place even though it was very brutal and once they leave um it can be it'd be hard to hang on to that sort of meaning making um apparatus you know and i i think that for better or for worse a lot of people they're not finding much meaning in their life and as they always have done throughout time um that's a very dangerous state where people tend to turn on um others who have nothing to do with their situation. I can't help but think as you're talking, there's, I live in South Minneapolis, um, very close to where George Floyd was murdered by the police. And there is a massive, well, I don't want to overstate it, but also I was sort of staggered by the statistics. The crime in South Minneapolis is going way up, like carjackings um, are just going up by like hundreds of percents. And looking at kind of the situation of the world around us, I mean, like, the, and I think that, you know, that's, I'm sure we're not unique. Um, Anyway, but in your novel, this end of the world feeling uh, has a lot more to do with worries about climate change than the Iraq war or the end of Trump's presidency. I wonder if you could talk to us about the character of Sylvia and her relationship with Lizzie. Mm -hmm. um, well, I wanted the character of Sylvia to be someone who um, had actually been an activist or at least exploring this issue for many, many years so that um, her kind of fatalistic attitude and in fact, her retreat um, after the election, it would be, um, would make sense because actually a lot of longtime activists, you know, watch their work get, get undone with a stroke of a few pens, um, in the aftermath of the election, uh, election and particularly environmental activists and all sorts of activists. And so I wanted to kind of create a sense in her that she, um, thought she'd been fighting the good fight but she'd also given up on it. And part of this was because I had in my own um, talking to people who are longtime activists, I had realized that many of them were incredibly fatalistic, that they didn't, that maybe they weren't gonna walk away, but they no longer thought that, um, they no longer had any illusions that they could, um, well, they just thought we were, that the doom was baked in. And I found that really uh, frightening, uh, but the, the actual passage you read about what should we teach our, our children, um, I asked one of, one of 
my friends who's this longtime activist and he, and he sort of said something like that, like, well, it'd be good if he had some, some skills, he said. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, his, his kid was like eight. I, and I said, what do you, what kind of skills do you mean? You mean like, like shooting and, and, and foraging. And he was kind of, he kind of nodded like, yeah. And at the time I thought that was so crazy and extreme. And of course I still think that it's a certain, um, it's a very narrow idea of what we need to do to prepare. I think a lot of people are preparing in a more community-minded way, but I'm interested in that. And with Sylvia, I just wanted to show someone who had gone so far down that path that she'd kind of given up. And Lizzie has to sort of step in a little bit. And she has a very different way of seeing the world um, that is more about noticing people Sylvia is kind of a thought leader, just like a number of other toxic figures on the American scene, of course, Trump, um, but also people like Alex Jones or Tucker Carlson. And Sylvia, in the end, turns out to be a relatively decent person, at least by my estimation. Is there any way we could get her to talk to some of these QAnon people and offer them some advice? Um, you know, it's interesting to think about that. I mean, I, I think that the, the question of how to reel people back um, who have um, have gone so far in that direction. I mean, uh, you probably know about all those um, sites where people talking about they've lost family and friends to QAnon. I noticed that the the scholar Ruth Ben Jiat, I don't know if I'm saying her name right. Um, she said that actually the model that people are talking about is kind of a model um, that has been used when former military members have become extremists um, or jihadists in some um, someplace that there's a there's a trying to go back to the um, the turning point of when this sense you had of like of that you wanted to fight evil like when did that get channeled towards this um, it basically requires kind of like cult deprogramming techniques um, so it's it, I don't think many people are having much luck doing it one on one though. You know, all those people who are like, oh, we need unity, you know, um, you can't do that unless, again, you have some shared sliver of reality. Um, and one of the things about QAnon as a conspiracy theory is it's a big tent one. It takes in almost everything. It like, it takes in, it's taking in anti-vaxxing. And so anything you, you say, people will just think, oh, it's because you're part of one of these uh, evil elements that's saying we're not knowing the truth. The closest thing I can think of to that is that in, in, in I was just trying to think like well, when was it when has there been a successful functional society that became overtaken by you know uh, sort of radical conspiracy ideas and then sort of managed to like get rid of that in a safe way? I don't. I mean, the best I can think of is America at, uh, during the time of the John Birch Society uh, and the uh, virulent anti-communist sort of panic of the McCarthy era. That we did sort of get through that. Um, one thing that happened was that William F. Buckley, who was a conservative columnist and writer, decided that we don't want the crazy Birch people in the Republican Party. And he started writing against them and saying, well, we got to stop believing this stuff. And I think that really it's, it's up to the Republicans to decide and have leaders that are effective that, that can say, we don't want to do this anymore. Yes, I, I think that you're right, that it's when people who are supposedly on the same side say this has gone too far. Um, like no one seems to be that surprised um, or take it that seriously that the Democrats are saying uh, we need to impeach or we need to um, take away the platforms of these people. But I think when um, when people who are kind of more or less ideologically aligned with them do, 
it starts to um, seem less like the usual battles, I guess. I mean, I think that's frustrating because it feels like it would be it would be better if there was some way to talk, um, even if you were on the other side. But I think we're so far past that right now. I mean, I think the people that are like, let's reach across the aisle, you know, you can't do that once people have committed themselves to um, to violence against the cause you the causes you hold sacred. I mean, you can't, you know, that's, the, it, it, there's a point of no return. So I think it's very frightening. Like, where do we go from here? In an interview you did with The Guardian, you quote uh, the philosopher Mircea Eliade, his concept of a uh, slow apocalypse. Um, I went jogging on the day of the coup, as I've done almost every day of Trump's presidency, and as I did every day before Trump's presidency. Um, I've done that ever since I knew that climate change was inevitable and disastrous. Uh, that night, uh, you know, rather than talking to my 11-year-old son about this, which I'll do at some point, I suppose, you know, I played Dungeons and Dragons with him, you know. Uh, and I wonder if, in part, your book is an effort to recreate that particular feeling of doom and, like, regular life coexisting. Yeah, I really thought specifically about that. Like, how could I capture that feeling of kind of... Um almost toggling back and forth between <laughs> apocalyptic thought and everyday life. Because unless you're, unless that's your full-time job um, to try to prevent uh, the ravages of climate change or, uh, or whatever it is, then you're probably gonna be coming in and out of it. Um, and so I found it very jarring, very strange to, um, to be once I started uh, researching the climate stuff, um, it was very strange to have this incredibly dark thoughts that were always there. I mean, if you look at people who've lived through sieges or wartime, one of the things they talk about is how important it was any kind of little normal ritual, ritual they could do to have a sense of normalcy. And I think all of those things are actually what hold us together you know, the running or the, I mean, I played, you asked what I was doing during the insurrection. I was playing Stardew Valley with my daughter, you know, where we like pretend milked cows and pretend like <laughs> took things from our garden. I've never played a video game before in my life until three weeks ago. I mean, I think there's a lot of ways of coping with this. And some of them are short-term and some of them are long-term, but routine is a big one. I think it's going to be so interesting to see how we all cope with the inevitable disruptions routine to routine that are awaiting us in just the next several days. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. And we want to encourage our listeners to go out and pick up Weather and Jenny's other books. Thank you so much. Great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Next, we're excited to welcome James Plath. Jim is the R. Forrest Colwell Endowed Chair and Professor of English at Illinois Wesleyan University, where he has taught American literature, film, journalism, and creative writing since 1988. He is a literary critic and film critic, as well as a literary and film critic, as well as the president of the John Updike Society. He is also the editor of a volume in the Critical Insights series on conspiracies. Jim, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's really great to have you with us. Would you start us off by reading a little bit from your opening essay in the book, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Conspiracy? Sure. 
Writer Stephen King once told the Paris Review, In every life you get to a point where you have to deal with something that's inexplicable to you. Whether it's the doctor saying you have cancer or a prank phone call. So whether you talk about ghosts or Nazi war criminals living down the block, we're still talking about the same thing, which is an intrusion of the extraordinary into ordinary life and how we deal with it. <clears throat> As the trial in 1984 imply, conspiracies and conspiracy theories are the epitome of the inexplicable and the extraordinary because they can seem so large as to make people feel totally powerless to cope with them. Witness the public's reaction when, in 2013, The Guardian reported leaked information detailing how the U.S. National Security Agency was currently collecting the telephone records of millions of U.S. customers of Verizon, one of America's largest telecoms providers, under a top-secret order issued in April. President Obama tried to explain that it was only an attempt to prevent terrorism, but a shocked and suspicious public wouldn't hear of it. Instead, many of them bought and reread Orwell's predictive novel about government surveillance. As The Atlantic reported, sales of 1984 spiked 3,100% within the first 24 hours of the Verizon announcement. Coinciding with fresh reports about the National Security Agency's surveillance programs, and the 29-year-old Booz Allen Hamilton employee, Edward Snowden, who leaked them. That was the public's way of dealing with an unthinkably large conspiracy, for what else could they do but try to learn as much as they could about surveillance and other dangers of which Orwell may have forewarned? While it's easy to shrug off the spike in book sales as being unrelated, or maybe the result of a more complex web of factors and events, it's worth noting that in 2017, Sales of 1984 once again soared after Kellyanne Conway, advisor to the reality TV star-turned-president Donald Trump, used the phrase alternative facts in an interview, and comparisons were made with the term newspeak used in the 1949 novel, which was used to signal a fictional language that aims at eliminating personal thought and also doublethink. Once more, the public's reaction reinforced the apparently natural desire to do something in the face of what seemed like a vast cons conspiracy too big to comprehend, and also provided empirical proof of the profound connection between literature and life. Historian Catherine Olmsted has argued convincingly that, uh, quote, American conspiracy theories underwent a fundamental transformation in the 20th century. No longer were conspiracy theorists chiefly concerned that alien forces were plotting to capture the federal government. Instead, they proposed that the federal government itself was the conspirator, and Americans suddenly feared the subversive potential of the swelling, secretive bureaucracies of the proto-national security state. If that's true, and the concept is certainly reflected in such repressive fictional dystopias as the ones described in Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, where books are outlawed, and Canadian writer Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, where women are forced to serve as reproductive vessels, it's problematic. Why? 
because a belief system that mistrusts government itself aligns average people emotionally and psychically with those fictional good cops and spies who suddenly realize, after their institution has branded them as having gone rogue, that they are alone and no one can be trusted, no one at all. What then is to be done? This is the unspoken question that runs through centuries of literature and through the minds of people today as they read about suspicious events. Thank you. That's really good. I, I really enjoyed the book. Um, and uh, we often have authors on. We don't get to have critics on as much as we would like. So it's a treat to have you here. Um, growing up in the 80s and 90s, I thought of conspiracy theory as a tool of the left, primarily. Uh, JFK assassination conspiracy narratives, including Oliver Stone's JFK and Don DeLillo's novel Libra, which are discussed in, in your book, um, try to explain the killing of a young extremely popular democratic leader, usually by blaming the forces of the right, you know, and, and the government forces that you're talking about are usually thought of as right or conservative forces, right? How do we go from that to today, having just lived through a week where a bunch of conspiracy minded people stormed the, uh, uh, and took over the capital of our country. Uh, I, I saw a picture of a guy wearing a QAnon shirt, you know, in the, in the middle of the rotunda, um, how do we go from that to QAnon, lizard people, and Chavez-controlled Dominion voting machines, um, where conspiracy uh, theories seem like a tool of the right? Yeah, I think tools is the operative word here. The very idea of conspiracy theory seems to have evolved from the, the logical to the paranoid and from individual concerns to group propaganda. Uh, conspiracy theories came into to being. They came into existence because uh, real, real conspiracies exist actual exposed and proven conspiracies. Uh, I mean, Aaron Burr really did try to raise an army and establish his own country in the Southeast, Southwestern United States. Uh, and the U.S. really did convince black men over a 40-year period that they were receiving treatment when really their untreated syphilis was only being observed and recorded. You know, from assassinations and coups to royal intrigues and mass deceptions, the timeline of history is full of conspiracies. And if those conspiracies are real, and here's the problem, then anything is possible. Anything could be real. Uh, where there's suspicion, fear, or paranoia, conspiracy theories rush in to fill the void and, and to follow. Uh, the problem, of course, is that there are plausible conspiracy theories and completely outlandish ones, and it all depends on the quality of mind that's dreaming up the theory in the first place, and then the quality of minds involved in spreading it. Uh, fiction fuels conspiracy thinking, whether it's speculative thought that comes from a theorist or imaginative thought that comes from a novelist. You mentioned lizard people, and that's a great example uh, because it's, it's really outlandish to me. A Syracuse University professor traced the idea of lizard people, just as a concept, back to uh, serpent men who appeared in an August 1929 issue of Weird Tales, but the idea remained fictional until a British conspiracy theorist ran with the concept in a 1999 book titled The Biggest Secret, in which he provided a complicated backstory and lineage chart that was worthy of a Game of Thrones uh, episode. It was so complicated. If it's true, is, is the premise of my question right? That like the, the conspiracy theories used to be sort of more about left politics. Oh, the, the government and the right has a secret that they're keeping from you and the truth will, will be found. And now it's the other way around where the right 
the you know the the people who believe that the election was stolen or followed. I mean, it, it looks obvious to me. It's a series of propaganda lies by the president. But people have been convinced by this and watched weird tapes of people counting votes, and they've decided you know that they've seen something that they didn't see. You know, but it's but it's being put in service of the of the Republican Party. I just haven't seen that before. I don't know when that when did that switch. There seems like there was some change over the last thirty years, and I'm I'm trying to figure out why that happened. Yeah. Um... I, I don't know. Uh, I, I really don't know. A, a, a couple of thoughts. One is everyone is paranoid about big, right? Big pharma, big oil, big brother. And uh, conservatives right now are basically small town people across right. America. We've heard that said over and over again, that people in small towns vote conservatively. And so, you know, maybe there's a connection there. The whole idea of the bigness of it, the, the vastness of it is scary in itself and now when you when you f- add fuel to that fire then uh maybe you you really pump it up uh for me though i think it maybe traces back to the 60s um i teach journalism too and dabble a little bit in public relations there was an old saying that image precedes essence and whether that was vocalized or not, that was just the way people thought, right? Well, if we say this, if we say we produce the world's best burrito, you know, eventually maybe we're going to get so many customers that we can afford to step up our game and oh, make okay. the world's best gotcha. burrito, okay. right? So you, you, you say you're something and eventually you become it. Well, Donald Trump understands that. Yeah. So we elect a business president, right? And And this really does fit right into... Uh, the Trump mode. I mean, if you look at the art of the deal, right, he's got two principles that really stand out. One is tell people what they want to hear. And two, if you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes a truth. You know, and both of those are very compatible with that whole idea of selling, of salesmanship, of, you know, you're you're doing this for a purpose. And uh, whether uh, it was a conspiracy to sell products, really, uh, back then. (laughs) You say capitalism is a conspiracy. Capitalism is a conspiracy. It is. And now that product is a political brand. To hear you sort of apply the language of capitalism to this makes a lot of sense because I feel like they are trying to, they're trying to sell something. Um, And, you know, as we were conceiving of this episode, we were talking, um, I think, you know, probably the first writer on both Whitney's mind and my mind was, was pension and the conspiracy theory at the heart of gravity's rainbow why Tyrone Slothrop gets a heart on every time a V2 rocket goes off is meant to be ridiculous. The novel uses that as a front to explore a theory that the author regards as totally plausible and sort of is in line with what we're talking about, that the war effort in World War II wasn't about ideology, but about the expansion of capital markets. And at the time, that's an extraordinarily controversial thing for him to have said. So I'm curious what you think about if there are times when conspiracy theories serve some legitimate purpose by providing a useful mask for an underlying truth that is too controversial or difficult to say directly. I'm reminded of the fact that Trump came to power as a result of espousing uh, discounted birther theories. Uh, And then he moved on from that to uh, talking about uh, the climate change, global warming being a hoax perpetuated by the Chinese in order to make U.S. manufacturers non-competitive. If that doesn't sound like a businessman trying to justify what he's doing, I don't know what is. And then, of course, we end his reign uh, with, with uh, a conspiracy again, you know, that the, the election was stolen from him, that he won in a landslide and, and you know, 
uh, and there's not a, a single fact that supports that. Um, Eisenhower famously warned us about the military-industrial complex, and uh, these days I think conspiracy theories have become more than theories. They are propaganda tools. Um, people have taken over. I don't know. I don't care if it's bots or if it's people that are working for political parties. The stuff that you see is memes now, and the things that you you read. Um, already, you are seeing posts, and I, I knew this would happen. Already, you're seeing posts saying, "Oh, but it wasn't the Trump supporters that started this riot. It yeah. was Antifa." Uh, yeah. plants that were, were egging them on and pushing them into it. The devil made me do it, right? It's, it's the new version of it. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's they are propaganda tools now. And uh, once it's out there, there's no putting it back in the jar again. I think before you would see this sort of thing relegated to, I don't know, the citizenry. And now you have Matt Getz saying it. Um, you know, on the floor of the house, or you have, um, you know, I was just looking at Twitter where it said that one of the people who stormed the Capitol, um, who assaulted the Capitol, was someone who had run for Congress and come within 800 votes of getting the GOP nomination in his district. And the the Twitter post sort of showed his his extensive QAnon supporting page. Um, and so, I mean, it, these are not one of the other things is that it, these are not fringe elements. Um, I mean, the word fringe being sort of blurry anyway, but like either the fringe is getting elected or it's not, I mean, it's not the fringe anymore. Yeah. Extremism, I think, thrives in an atmosphere that is, you know, bifurcated, that we are so polarized right now uh, that it's easy to demonize the, the opposition. I mean, Trump called the media uh, the enemy of the people. And I don't know if you saw it, but written on the door was murder, the, murder media. the media. I mean, holy smokes, you know, yeah. that words have consequences. It's true. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I still remain convinced that when it comes to conspiracy theories, there are two kinds of people, really. There are the people who are buying them and the people who are selling them. I used to think of the conspiracy theory narrative as a useful tool, right? So that there's a line in the essay on uh, JFK and um, DeLillo's uh, Libra that talks about how JFK highlights and uh, Libra highlights and JFK encourages, quote, a national shift from innocence to experience, from general belief to skepticism. Now, the and that's kind of what X-Files does, right? And things like that, where they're saying, like, look, don't trust your government. It's not the 1950s or you shouldn't have trusted them in the 1950s. Right. And also. Similar things about, you know, in, in the essay on Ellison and Invisible Man, you know, we're going to get to that in a minute, but that's a, the conspiracies being uncovered there need to be uncovered, right? And that's important. Um, and here, now, I feel like we don't have enough, we have only skepticism and no belief in government at all. And suddenly the government's like, the Democrats who've been trafficking, I mean, the left has trafficked in these theories in the past are like, no, 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 actually the government's good. You should believe it. It's okay. Like, it's kind of like it's all gotten gone too far. Yeah, it, it does make sense. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know where we're, we're headed with that. I really don't. I wonder how much of this is about class, um, which is, of course, another... I mean, I think I, I, I think and hope that the left is putting that forward in an intersectional fashion. Um, and on the right, and certainly in some parts of the left, you hear sort of a lot of, um, you know, are we addressing the white working class sufficiently? 
And of course, like I think a huge amount has been said about the whiteness of the people who were at the Capitol. How does class factor into this? You know, I every time I hear about class, I think of something. Uh, I had the pleasure of interviewing uh, social realist painter Jack Levine years ago, and he said something to me that always stuck with me. Economics sets our margins, he told me. And I believe that to be true. Your world is smaller if your bank account is smaller. You think smaller. You act smaller than someone who is, quote, living large. So I do think that class plays a huge role in the way that people see themselves in the world, see themselves in relation to the world, even. And I do think that it informs what they believe to be possible or impossible, you know, but to, but to bring it back to the idea of conspiracy theories, I think it would be tempting to, to listen to the crazy rantings of a true believer and all of a sudden just dismiss them as the product of a limited education. Uh, and that's because I, I think I ran across a, a Psychology Today article uh, maybe a year ago that affirms that people who are prone to believe conspiracy theories uh, share certain personality traits. And let me see if I can find it. Um, yeah. Um, including, and I quote, low levels of trust and an increased need for closure, along with feelings of powerlessness, low self-esteem, paranoid thinking, and a need to feel unique. Well, perhaps not coincidentally, people who are lower to lower middle class don't have the same access to power and information that those of an upper class do, even in practical matters like your 401k or something. Uh, and that can lead to suspicion. It can lead to a lack of trust, a feeling of powerlessness, which in turn leads to self-esteem or paranoid thought. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, I think that's, I mean, that's, yes. You mentioned uh, Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale in the reading that you that you did, and it, and it comes up in the book. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's been a very popular book for the last four years. Uh, and one of the essays in the, in the volume talks about it. That said, it seems to me like so much about conspiracy theory and its literature is masculine. I mean, the first five authors that I thought of were white guys like Pynchon and, and DeLillo. Um, am I right about that or am I, am I just my readings just not wide enough? I think that there is something to it. But yet, um, yeah, I, the whole idea of conspiracies in literature go back way. As far as I'm concerned, there are examples of it in the Bible. You know, where you have Rebecca who schemes with her son Jacob to trick blind uh, patriarch uh, Isaiah, Isaac rather, to give him the blessing that had been promised to his older brother, Esau. Then there are the brothers of Joseph who plot to get rid of that sibling when their father loves him more. Then we meet the Philistines who take up a collection to offer uh, silver to Delilah if she'll find out and share the secret of Samson's strength so they could take him down. In each of these examples, the conspiracy was about power and control, right? And it's no secret that males worldwide since then have been all about power and control, <laughs> right? And dominant and, and ambitious in those areas. Uh, we're, we're late when it comes to the, the game of adding a, a, a woman to the top of the ticket. I, I mean, that said, the Stop the Steal rioter who was shot trying to enter the Capitol chamber was a woman who fervently believed an unproven theory that the election was rigged. A number of the video videos that I've seen of sort of interviews of um, people from Wednesday have been of women. Um, I mean, certainly, but the when I look at photographs or whatever, there's, um, I mean, not only is it masculinity, it's sort of 
masculinity writ large. The, I mean, there was that video circulating of the guy with um, no one. No one on television seems to know how to describe him, and I don't either. The guy with the furry hat and the like horns. The semi-Viking thing, yeah. Right. So it's like I'm I'm a man, and I'm gonna like adorn myself with all the accoutrement of being a man so that I can be the biggest possible man as I storm into the Capitol and, you know, destroy this, um, this, this edifice of American democracy. It was just the, the outfits, like, like the, the icons of, of this, um, were also so masculine. It's like they were headed to an NFL game. Yeah. Or a cosplay. I mean, I don't know. I, I have felt like there was a lot of dressing up Right now, there were I read a really interesting article in Slate today where they talked about those guys with the zip ties that they were serious, right? Like they, they were guys who were masked with zip ties and they were going and they were and they had armor on. Um, but a lot of the people, you know, I feel like it's there. It's like somebody said another Slate reporter that I listened to said it was like going to Comic Con. The the masculinity of all of these narratives is fascinating to me, and, and I think. Um, yeah, even just the ways that um, the women who are in these videos, I'm sort of like your your Aunt Lydia adjacent from The Handmaid's Tale. I feel like they're they're the accomplices. Um, they're so dutiful and willing accomplices and active accomplices and active participants. Yeah, but um, I was also thinking about um, you know as we were talking about this and reading about what had happened on Wednesday. Blackness in the U.S. also has a very specific relationship to conspiracy theory. And one of the essays in the book, when he was mentioning Allison earlier, is um, The Old Man's Laughter, The Conspiracy of American Life in Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, in, in an essay by Matthew Scheip. And in reading it, I couldn't help but think of what was going on Wednesday. And all of the black commentators I saw, like Adam Serwer of The Atlantic, for example, who was noting that black and brown writers had been saying for the past four years, and in some cases longer, that this was exactly what was coming and no one had taken them seriously. And, and that also was such a familiar kind of trope of the conspiracy, the person who kind of shouts the truth and no one will believe them, and actually they're correct. And amazingly to me, like, Shipe's essay ends on this hopeful note about, and I'm quoting here, a conceivable way forward for exposing the conspiracies that have hindered and thwarted the democratic promises that the United States guarantees for all its citizens. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the history of Black writers addressing conspiracy in American life and American government. Well, I'm no expert on African-American literature, so I can't really comment on, on the sweeping history of it all. Um, but I don't think it takes an expert to see what Joe Biden and others have noticed, the vastly different police responses to, uh, you know, the two different uh, crowds that descended on D.C. What I can say about African-American literature is that authors typically write from their own experience. And every book I've read by a black American writer deals with some level of systemic racism that could be construed as a racial conspiracy. Yeah, I mean, s- systemic racism is a conspiracy. That's what it is. I know, I know. But it's not, It's you know, it's not a conscious thing where, like, you and I decide, you know, we're, we're white and we decide we're going to get together and, and block this out. But I think you see it, uh, I think you see it in uh, the Ellison uh, novel, you know, where... Uh, yeah, they have a, a, a young black man who is his, uh, his high school valedictorian, and he's invited to give this speech. But uh, yeah, all of the people in power in that town who have any authority whatsoever are white, and they, they invite him to come give his speech to their civic leader group. Uh, the, the trouble is, he has to first uh, strip down 
blindfold and uh, fight and box in a battle royale with all of the other uh, black kids from his, uh, his school and neighborhood and, and whatever. Uh, the unspoken message being, you know, uh, you are not going to rise up above your station. Um, and, and, you know, there was no meeting to, to bring this about. But what there was, and, and uh, Ellison brings this about through very subtle descriptions, there was the wink-wink, you know, aspect to it, where you get sidelong looks and winks uh, among these guys who are uh, using these people for their own amusement. And, you know, I hadn't thought of that scene before as um, a predecessor for, and I'm spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen this movie yet, although I don't know why you wouldn't have, but Get Out, you know, the auction scene. I hadn't thought of this that this scene in Invisible Man before as like a predecessor to that one, but I, now I'm thinking that it very obviously is. And um, Maurice Carlos Ruffin has a scene like that at the beginning of his book, which we talked about a few episodes ago. Yeah. And um, that also having this sort of wink, wink that you're referring to. I was just going to say like, yes, okay. But, you know, in my, in my town, we've talked a lot about the use of racial covenants, which I wrote about in my second novel. That was not, that was a very disgust thing that people did. Right. And okay, we're putting racial covenants in, it's going to have this effect. Now, a family did it, and they talked about it amongst themselves and then never talked about it to anyone else. Everyone pretended, you know, like they weren't talking about it. But it, somebody decided to do it at a point and knew what it would do, right? So there is discussion, right? And it doesn't matter whether it's whether it's obvious or not. It doesn't have to be that blatant. Um, in Tony, one of my favorite books, Tony Morrison's Song of Solomon, uh, if that novel were made into a movie, the whole cast would be black. I wish it were made into a movie. It's terrific. Uh, but uh, whites cast a long and powerful shadow that affects the characters. Uh, it constrains them. Uh, and, and uh, well, there are two main characters, Macon Dead. Uh, Macon Dead II has learned from his interactions with and observances of whites uh, to put wealth ahead of community and family. He dresses for success. He models his own ruthless business behavior after white businessmen. He seeks the kind of validation established by the white community, and that extends to the kind of car he drives, the way he carries himself around town. But then on the flip side, you've got a young character named Guitar, who is a member of an underground radical group whose mission it is to invoke the biblical injunction of an eye for an eye. So when an African-American is harmed or killed, this secret group responds in kind by victimizing a random white person. Those are two radically different responses to the conspiracy of institutional racism. And I think Morrison does a great job of, of uh, dealing with it. I think, I think going back to the Scheib quote, I think it's, uh, I would love to be that optimistic. Uh, I think for me to be that optimistic that, you know, um, getting these conspiracies out into the open is the first step to, to removing them from the depths of, you know, their entrenchment. Um, but to have a dialogue, we need to return to a time when facts mattered and facts were immutable, not you have your facts and I have my facts. Have you ever tried to have a discussion with a Trumper and, and try to convince them or a Trumper try to convince you? Um, it's not happening, you know, so th that's where I think we need to get past that somehow and uh, return to this time when facts really were these these kind of solid things and we, we need to admit that 
Yeah, this is probably where I deliver my standard rant on the defunding of public education over that past half century and also the death of journalism. Um, but since that's like, it's like a separate, no, it's like a whole separate episode. Plus, I think our listeners have probably heard me do it several times. And I think I, but I, I do want to bring up as, as we're talking, I can't help but remember, I wonder if you've read my friend Peter Ho Davies wrote this amazing story called The Hull Case which is about um, the abduction by aliens of an interracial couple. And um, then subsequently they, ha- they disagree on how it should be reported. And the husband, who is um, a, a black war veteran, does not particularly want to report it to the police, and, and his wife does. And, um, and it has in it this sort of like intersection of so many of the things that we're talking about, you know, um, like the aliens, aliens transitioning over to the aliens is the conspiracy versus the government is the conspiracy and state authorities is a conspiracy. And plus this sort of discussion of race and gender. So for our listeners who haven't read that, or if you have, have you read the story? Are you familiar with it? No, I want to take notes here. (laughs) Yeah, I, um, it's, it's such a, it's such a brilliant story and it sort of, um, crystallizes so many of these things. Um, and just sort of their, their really different, their different set of facts about the police. Um, and yet they've had the same experience and they react to it in such, such different ways. So I, I definitely want to ask you about Russia before we conclude our conversation, because this is sort of my, the thing that I have been worried about since 2016. Um, I was glued to the television on Wednesday and I can't help but imagine the KGB laughing evilly and Vladimir Putin like Mr. Burnsing his fingers. And then I realized that this image and most of my mental images of international evil um, probably come from Bond. And so I was fascinated to read in, in this book that Ian Fleming created Spectre um, because he thought that, and I'm quoting here, peace might break out with the USSR. And, and now something that we might once have dismissed as conspiracy theory that Russia meddled in the US elections is true and has been reported as such by, uh, you know, Republican-led Senate intelligence committees, et cetera. And we have Cold War II or something, or maybe just the evolution of Cold War One, And so I'm curious for your thoughts about how the depictions of international conspiracy have evolved or not in television and film. Uh, yeah, once again, when you talk about evolve, you're talking about something that's so far sweeping that I don't know that I could tackle it. But I, I do know that uh, conspiracy theories really seem like the new religion. Either people reject them or they believe them, but they do so with fervor, right? And so when the CIA, you talk about Russian interference... When the CIA, the FBI, the National Security Agency, and even the officer, the director of national intelligence that I didn't even know we had, all came to separate conclusions that Russia interfered in the election. Only Democrats and independents seem to believe it, right? And so that's a problem? It is. And I do think the notion of the deep state derives from that ultimate evil organization, Spectre. You might as well have, you know, a Bond film with deep state. I think we're going there. Does everybody still know what Spectre is? Sugi, you read me the, I don't remember what, it's It's like an acronym, right? Do you remember what the acronym is for? And it's the guy who he leads it is number one, right? And he has that cat and he's always petting this cat and you never see his face. Number one, then um, he has a number two and yeah, and Austin and Powers. Uh, he's always knocking off his number one, his number twos and number threes in horrible ways, like dropping them into like co- crocodile pits or... <laughs> I did not know what Spectre stood for until I was reading your book and I learned that it is the Special Executive for Terrorism, Revenge, and Extortion. Well, what you were saying, Jim, like is interesting because to me, because the Russia thing is a great conspiracy. Like, and you'd think all the all the QAnon people would love that one. That's a fantastic one. Why not go down that one? There's some level at which 
the politicization of conspiracy theories has become clear to people so that people who like QAnon can tell which one is the conspiracy theory that is for my side and which one is the conspiracy theory that is against my side. And I'm not going to like the conspiracy theory that's against my side. I only like the ones that are on my side, right? There's some parsing there that they understand, like, this is a Republican conspiracy theory. I'm down. This this one, however, is a Democratic one. I don't like it, you know? It's out, right? I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, you get Trump calling Democrats enemies of the people. You know, he's playing to that idea of the large secret organizational boogeyman that's capable of destroying conservative life as we know it, you know. And so I, I do think it's come down to that. Who, which side are you on? Which team are you on? It's like, you know, politics are, are all of a sudden a combination of religion and fan spectator sports. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Listeners, don't miss James Platt's writing and especially Critical Insights Conspiracies. Thanks for having me here. I enjoyed it. It was great to have you. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub. We'd like to end our first episode of 2021 by saying how much we appreciate the journalists who covered last week's attempted coup at the Capitol in Washington, D.C., while they were under assault themselves. We're grateful for the important reporting done regarding the events of that day and everything that led up to it. Our show's producer is Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these spots, you'll find links to our LitHub Radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. Until next time, post-inauguration, mask up and stay safe. Stay safe.